0: Throughout the course of this year, we've been talking about the rhythm of grace, and um, we've said that we live that rhythm weekly in our personal worship. We live it here as we gather together on Sunday mornings. We've been living it throughout the course of this year as we've reached back into the Christian calendar and reincorporated a lot of those traditions for a good reason. Those traditions are there for good reason, and we believe they honor the Lord. But as we continue now in our worship and as we continue in that rhythm of grace, we come now to the Word of God as those who have already remembered who God is. It's how we began Psalm 27, that first song, which incidentally, if you get the emails on Fridays, I hope you read them, because all the songs are listed, including the new ones, like with links, so you can go and listen to it and learn it even before you come, or at least familiarize yourself with it so that when you come, you're ready to worship. That's the idea. And there's instruction in those emails about worship that's really, honestly, very profound. Ryan writes beautifully about it. But we come now to God's Word as those who have first come into God's presence consciously, have set aside the world, put away all of the frustrations, all the craziness that we had to endure, including the rain, to get here this morning. We've set that aside and remembered who our God is. And in light of who He is, we've been honest with Him about ourselves, for we've seen ourselves for who we are, and we've confessed our sin. We've then... Receive the assurance that our sin in Christ is entirely and completely forgiven and poured forth our praise to Him in song, in offering, in all of these different ways. Now, what have we done? We've asked the Lord to speak, and we've come now to receive His instruction. And I want to tell you how it is that we're to come to receive his instruction. What is the posture of the heart of the servant in the Bible? Because we see it again and again and again and again and again. And it should be our posture every time we open the Bible, in personal worship or in corporate worship or wherever. It is, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. That's it. It's like we open the Bible and we say to God, all right, here is the stage. Here's the microphone to my life. Here it is. Speak, Lord, for your servant listens. I stand beneath you, And your word, and I'm not here to tell you what to say. I'm here to listen. And not just listen with a heart that hopes to understand what it is that you say, and then I can evaluate it and decide for myself whether or not I like it. No, no, no. With a heart that is saying whatever it is that you say is truth. Whatever it is that you say is blessing. Whatever it is that you say is life. Whatever it is you say is good. Whatever it is that you say is right. And I can't wait to do it. So with that posture of heart this morning, we return to this study of the book of Luke that we've been doing ever since Advent of last year, so throughout this Christian calendar year, and we return... Today, again, to the temple courts in Jerusalem, which is where we left off, Jesus contending with the religious leaders of Israel in the temple courts, who at this point, guys, are not just trying to embarrass Jesus, they're not just trying to marginalize him, they're not just trying to somehow diminish him in the eyes of the people. At this point in the narrative, these guys are actively trying to trap Jesus, to entice Jesus into making some kind of a statement that they can then use to put him to death on a Roman cross. And again, here's why. Because as we talked about last week, unlike the disciples of Jesus who received Jesus up into the city of Jerusalem as their king, these guys received Jesus up into the city of Jerusalem as a threat to their own personal kingdoms. And again, a threat not just to be embarrassed, marginalized, or diminished, a threat to be eliminated. That is their aim, and that is their goal. And as we've marched toward this passage of Scripture today with Christ as He's moved toward the city of Jerusalem for the last time... We're near the end, and as we've watched him enter up into these temple courts already, what we've seen is these guys again and again, these brilliant men have huddled together to do what? To concoct some kind of a seemingly brilliant question that they then come to Jesus with, hoping that they can trap Jesus again into making some kind of a statement that will finally prove to everyone publicly that he is a heretic because that's what they think he is, and yet again and again and again, what's happened? Every time they've done that, Jesus has taken their trap and he's trapped them in it. And far from proving that he's the heretic, he's proven that they're the heretics. I mean, it's got to be frustrating. That's what happens again today. Today, Luke is going to come to us with three different pictures. It's a very common theme with him. He always comes to us with pictures. He describes to us people that we're meant to compare ourselves to. So he will come to us, first of all, with the picture of the Sadducees. And he's going to say, look at it, understand who they are and how that works their way out or works its way out in their lives. Then the Pharisees, the scribes, and he'll say, look at it. And then he'll come to us, lastly, with this this picture of this precious woman, This humble, amazing woman that nobody in the narrative even notices, except for the Lord. And he points her out to who? His disciples. That's us too. The idea is we come to this story that Luke will give us three pictures within, and we come to it now at least, knowing in advance which one we're supposed to look like. He's saying, don't look like the Sadducees. And if you do, deal with that, that you might look like the widow. Oh, don't look like the scribes, again, who were Pharisees. And if you do, well, then deal with that so that you might look like the widow. And then he comes to us with the widow, and he says, here, look like her. So we pick up our study today in Luke 20, beginning in verse 27, where Luke says this. He says that there came to Jesus in the temple court some Sadducees, and now he describes them, and in doing this, he gives us their picture. Picture number one is a picture of those who deny that there is a bodily resurrection, the idea being of the dead for for the people of God at the end of this age. And more than that, and it's hinted at in the narrative, what we know about the Sadducees is that they denied the afterlife for anyone also. So no afterlife at all for these guys. So what is this a picture of then? Picture number one is the picture of a person who lives this life, as if this life really and truly is the only life there is, and who therefore also have only really two motivations for serving God in this life. Motivation number one, fear. Motivation number two, as a bribe. Think about it. I mean, if there's no eternity, if there's no heaven, if there's no hell, if there are no eternal rewards or punishments or any of those kinds of things to fear or be concerned about or be motivated by, why would you serve the Lord except out of fear of what He might do to you in this life? And so, Lord, occasionally I'm going to be obedient to you because I kind of feel like good grief, if I did this, you might take it out on me and it would be unpleasant for me. And so because I fear that unpleasant result, possibility, more than I desire to do this, whatever this is, I'm going to be obedient in this case, but only because it selfishly works for my purposes or as a bribe. Hey, Lord, I did my personal worship every day this week. I, I, I helped some old lady across the street in the rain, I went down to Hope, South Florida, and I helped serve a meal to the homeless this week. I'm at church. I came early. I I read the email. I learned the song before I got here. I sang. I wrote you a check. Here's why I did that. Because this is what I want you to do for me. And I kind of feel like I deserve it. All right, you see the picture. Now ask yourself, first of all, How does the reality of an actual heaven and an actual hell and a real, I mean real, eternal rewards and punishments in a real eternal life for every human being on the planet who will enter into that very real eternal life upon their death, how does that affect the way that you live? Like practically speaking, just play it out. Well, it affects this way, it affects this way. How does it affect the way that you're a husband or a wife, that you treat your spouse? How does it affect that? Like when you go to your heavenly father, do you go to your heavenly father realizing also that you're going to your heavenly father in law? At least if your husband or wife is a believer, you know, the one that you'll meet someday on the other side of death. That is an awesome thing. It's an amazing thought. How does it affect the way that you parent your kids? Because we are big on mathematics and science and English and all of these things so that they'll learn all of these skills and pragmatically work their way out and be successful in this life. How much time do you spend concerning yourself with their soul? And how does that affect your school choices? How does it affect your professional life? The way that you run your business? I'm talking about eternity. How does eternity make its way into what you do and how you do what you do? How does it affect your career choices? Like when a career opportunity comes, you know, do you run right past the Lord and eternity and his kingdom and all of these other things in a rush to lay hold of it? Because it's been the thing that you've really been longing for and looking for without giving any thought to how this might impact your family, your kids, your wife, your husband, whatever, for all of eternity. How does it affect the way that you spend your money? You're like, Tom, you talk about it all the time. Yeah, I do, because we live in the most materialistic culture in history of mankind, I'm sure someone will outpace us someday, but we're not there yet. And incidentally, it's part of the text today. Watch the widow at the end. How much time do you invest? How, how much of your strategic abilities do you spend thinking about eternal things and, and how to take people to heaven with you, if you will? How do we get the gospel out into the streets of this city, of this state, of this country, of this world? Okay, so how does the reality of an actual heaven and an actual hell, real eternal rewards and punishments, and a very real eternal life that every human being will enter into upon their death have, first of all, in the way that you live, and then secondly, when you do live for Jesus or serve Jesus, what motivates you to do it? Is it, is it fear? I mean, you know, just trying to keep the man upstairs happy? Is it as a bribe? Hey, Lord, look what I've done. Because subconsciously that happens to all of us, Really? That's why we're so disappointed when it doesn't go for us the way that we think, because we think we deserve better than that based upon what we've done. What we've done. Or is it out of love? Here's what the Lord says. He says, you know what? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So what is he telling us? He's saying there's the motivation for obedience. That's it. That's the whole of it. And it's an awesome motivation when you fall in love with Christ, when you pursue Christ, when you enter into this rhythm of grace daily and weekly and annually, as we've been talking about since, again, November of last year. And He begins to transform your heart and capture you. Here's what happens. Your heart falls in love with Him. And suddenly you want to do things for Him. You desire to obey. It's not a something you do begrudgingly or out of fear or obligation or whatever. So you've seen picture number one. How do you compare to it? And know this, you're not supposed to look like the Sadducees. You're supposed to look like the widow that we'll meet in a minute. And so Luke says, there came to Jesus in the temple court, some Sadducees, here's their picture, those who deny that there is a bodily resurrection from the dead for the people of God at the end of this age, and for that matter, any kind of an afterlife for anyone after death at all. And they asked Jesus a trick question, not to embarrass him, not to marginalize him, not to diminish him, but to trap him, to trick him with the hopes that they can use it to put him to death, saying, teacher, which is all that he is to them. And then they quote Moses. Now, why do they do that? Because it completes their picture. The Sadducees only believed in the writings of Moses. All the other scriptures, they set aside. So the complete picture then of these guys is that of Of people who pick and choose amongst God's Word. You know, speak, Lord, for your servant listens, unless you're going to talk about that, in which case, not so much. Interesting group, these guys. Moses wrote for us, they say, that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children... The man must take the what? The widow. It's the running theme. And all of these stories that we're seeing are tied together by that theme of his brother. And then raise up, which is the language of resurrection, offspring for his brother, the idea being with his brother's widow. Okay, what this is a reference to is what's called the Leverett Law of God. And here's how it worked. If a married man died and did not leave a son behind to carry forth his name... To inherit his land and to take care of his widow, the married man whose died, brother, was required by law to marry the dead man's widow. And with her to have a son to do what? Carry forth the dead man's name. Inherit the dead man's land. Take care of the dead man's widow. That's the idea. It's a shameful thing in Israel for a name to perish and for a family's allotment of land to go uninherited. So they take this law, and they come to Jesus with a question about the resurrection from it. Again, the Sadducees asked Jesus a question about the resurrection, saying, Teacher, Moses, who alone amongst all the scriptural writers we respect, wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow of his brother and raise up offspring for his brother to carry on his name and inherit his land and take care of his widow. Now, with that law squarely in mind, Jesus, we want to ask you a trick question that we're feeling pretty good about. And here it is, we want you to imagine, here's your hypothetical, that there were seven brothers and the first brother took a wife and then he died without first having any children with her. And so then pursuant to this leveret law, Jesus, the second brother took her as his wife, but then he died without having any children with her. And then the third took her also as his wife, but then he died without having any children with her. And likewise, all seven brothers, who at some point had to be questioning their sanity, took this widow as their wife, and all seven brothers, like the seventh was not the brightest bulb on the tree, died and left her behind with no children… And then afterward, the woman also died. Okay, so Jesus, here's our question. In the resurrection that we don't believe is coming and think is ridiculous, but we know that you, you do think is coming. Well, therefore, whose wife will this one woman be? For all seven brothers had this one woman as their wife. Do you see the trap? It's brilliant, isn't it? Glad they didn't ask me this question. It's not nearly as brilliant as Jesus. He blows the whole thing up. Luke says in verse 34, Jesus said to them, I'm going to talk to you about the other age for a minute. And what you need to understand is that there are appreciable differences between the two. And propagation of the species, for example, is not one of the things that we'll be concerned about in the other age. It's different Jesus said to them, the sons of this age, the one that we're living in now, marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age, that is to say, to the afterlife, which is actually coming, boys, and to the resurrection from the dead, which really is coming, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. And now He will trap them in their own trap. He says, but that the dead are raised, even Moses, whom alone you respect, showed. And he showed it in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, present tense, as opposed to The God who was once the God of Abraham until Abraham died and ceased to exist. Oh, and the God who was once the God of Isaac until he died and ceased to exist. And the God who was once the God of Jacob until he died and ceased to exist. They didn't cease to exist. That's the point. And so Jesus says, now God is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all. Live to him. Boom. He's done it again. They've come to him with a trap designed to trap him, and he's taken their trap, and he's trapped them. And instead of being exposed himself as a heretic for the way that he misinterprets the Bible, he's just exposed them as heretics for the way that they misinterpret the Bible. It's amazing. And then we read that some of the scribes, who again, were almost certainly Pharisees, and I say that based upon their reaction here, as well as what we know elsewhere, these guys are massively conflicted in this moment. Because the only thing the Pharisees and the Sadducees agree on is we want to get rid of Jesus. And so on the one hand, the Sadducees have laid a brilliant trap for Jesus that Jesus has just trapped them in and exposed them with yet again. So disappointment. But on the other hand, one of the things that these guys bitterly feuded with the Sadducees over is the afterlife. And in particular, the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age, and Jesus has just made their closing argument for them. So, you know, they're not sure whether to hang their heads or high-five each other and stick their tongues out at the Sadducees because those guys just got laid low, and they had to be feeling at least good about that. And so, at least some of the scribes we now read answered. They're standing there. They just heard this and watched it go down. And they said, teacher same word the Sadducees used. It's all he is to these guys too. You have spoken well. But here's what they didn't do. They didn't ask him any questions. They, they all learned their lesson. And Luke now tells us that they, meaning the Sadducees and the Pharisees, no longer dared to ask Jesus any questions because every time they did, they found themselves caught in their own traps and publicly exposed. And now watch what Jesus does. He says, oh, oh you're not going to come to me with a trap? Fine, I'm now going to come to you with a trap. You guys are feeling pretty good that these guys just started looking bad and were just exposed for not being able to interpret the Bible? Okay, let me just show everybody now how you also are heretics, how you also miss it completely, how you also misinterpret the Bible. You're right on the resurrection. You're wrong on the Messiah, who is the key to the resurrection and to the kind of afterlife that we all want. Heaven, reward, all of those things. And that, too, is a great heresy. And so Luke says in verse 41, but Jesus said to them, how can they meaning all the writers of Scripture, say that the Christ or the Messiah, that's the idea, is David's son. Why does that matter? Because as you read through the Bible, you realize that in the Scriptures and to their mindset, the father is always greater than the son. Always. And the grandfather is greater than the father who's greater than the son. And the great-grandfather is greater than the grandfather who's greater than the father who is greater than the son. You get the idea? As you ascend up the lineage, you ascend in greatness. So what Jesus is going to point out is that, okay, but the Bible says that the Messiah is David's son. So by definition, he's a lesser being. And yet, in Psalm 110, David refers to the Messiah as my Lord. He refers to him as a much greater being. Please do explain, since you guys think you know so much about the Messiah. That's his argument. Jesus says to these scribes and Pharisees, how can they, the writers of Scripture, say that the Christ or the Messiah is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord, meaning God the Father, said to who? Here it is. My Lord, the Messiah, my son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David, Jesus says, thus called the Messiah his Lord. So then how is he his son? Boom. Trap closed and they have no answer. Like, there's not a response. They're just they're, they're dumbfounded. They're speechless. They're, they're, they're finished. And just like the Sadducees were exposed for being heretics in regard to the resurrection and the afterlife and so forth, Jesus has now publicly exposed the Pharisees for being heretics too. So you can imagine why they loved him so. And so then verse 45, Jesus goes on, with these guys standing there, in the hearing of all the people, you hear that? Jesus said to his disciples, just put yourself in that group and say, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. He's speaking to you. He says, beware the scribes or of the Pharisees. Now, what does that tell you? I mean, you don't warn somebody of something that actually isn't a risk to them, do you? He's warning us He's saying, listen, I I know this is in you. We're all made of the same clay. All of us are subject to the same limitations and weaknesses. (laughs) Watch out. Don't let this happen to you, he says. Beware the scribes or the Pharisees. And now he gives us a picture of them, picture number two. And it's a picture of those, you ready, who like to walk around in long robes. Now, what is that reference to? Fine and beautiful clothing. Why do they like to walk around in long robes? because everybody notices. That's it. And so they work hard and they're very successful. And the reason they work hard and they're very successful is because they're motivated to work hard and to be very successful. Because when they do that, they can buy nice clothes as one example here, and we'll see several others. And then everybody notices them and says, wow, they're different from the rest of us. They are above us in some sense, and that's their sweet spot that's what they're going for. So they love to walk around in long flowing robes because by doing so they lay claim to exalted social status, but that's not all. They love greetings in the marketplaces, in the places of business. He's going to start laying claim to all of these different areas of life, and he starts with the place of business. They love the greetings in the marketplace, in these places of business. What kind of greetings, however? Greetings that recognize them as extraordinary that communicate respect, that convey significance. And so they labor and labor and spend all of their time and energy and all of their creativity working toward being respected in this particular area of life because what they're living for is the applause that that brings to them. And now he continues. He says, and who love the best seats in the synagogues, the places of worship. So he's now moving into the religious arena. And the best seats... Went to the big givers. They were the seats that everybody could see. Why then were they generous? So that they can have the best seat. It wasn't about the Lord, it was about them. Keep that in mind. And then he says, and who loved the places of honor at private feasts. But these private feasts, as we've talked about, were attended by the public. And the pecking order, the seating order mattered, you see. So the public would show up and they would notice where everybody was seated, and then they would go out into the town and tell everyone, here's where so-and-so was seated, and then here's where so-and-so was seated. It was a matter of honor. Get the idea? And so these guys would work their tails off so that they could wear nice clothes, so they can be respected in the business arena, so they could give a big gift and have the most prominent seats in the synagogues. Oh, and so that they could throw amazing feasts for all of their friends who would then turn around and throw amazing feasts for them, so that everyone in the community could talk about where they sat and how great they were. And here's the end result they devour widows' houses. There's the idea of the widow again. You're like, well, how are they devouring widows' houses? It's obvious, isn't it? By taking the time, by taking the energy, by taking the creativity that they could have been employing to find justice for these widows who are defenseless, the most defenseless part of society, and spending it on themselves, chasing the applause of men, and taking the resources that they could have used to keep these widows from going under, for keep their houses from being devoured, literally, and spending it on their clothes and on feasts and on seats and on things, which is just another way of saying spending it all on themselves. They are self-consuming, self-absorbing people who care nothing about the poor, about the defenseless, For a pretense, Jesus says, these people make long prayers and they do it out loud so as to impress everyone with how articulate they are, and no doubt they pray for the very widows whose homes they themselves consume through their self-consumption. They will receive the greater condemnation. So that's a pretty graphic picture. It's the picture of a self-absorbed, self-consumed person who professes to care for the poor, but who really doesn't, and here's how you know. They consume the very resources that the poor need to survive. And they do it because, in truth, what they're after in life is the applause of men, because in that, they find their importance and significance. By that, they convince themselves that they matter. That's it. Okay, so ask yourself, what do I live for? I mean, what really is it that moves me, that stirs me, that motivates me, that gets me out of bed in the morning and that drives me so hard through life? Is it the applause and the recognition of men or is it the applause of God? Because we'll see the applause of God in a second. It's coming for somebody and that somebody is the widow. It's kind of a big deal. In humor. or in what do I find my identity, my significance And what does my generosity toward the poor say in response? What am I living for? Applause of men or applause of God? Okay, so let's look at the applause of God because we see it in picture number three. Luke then says in Luke 21, beginning in verse 1, he says, Then Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, which wasn't a box, incidentally. I don't even know why it says that, truthfully. It was like a big brass trumpet. It was like a big brass cornucopia. Can you imagine that? There were seven of them in the temple courts, one of which was located in the court of the women so that the women too could make offerings. And because these trumpets were made of brass and the coinage in that day was made of metal, when you put your coins into the brass trumpet, it made a noise. And they referred to that as the sounding of the trumpets. And so guess what people like the Sadducees and like the Pharisees who were all about themselves and making a big noise for them did? They would go down to the bank and they'd take all their hundred dollar bills that they could have just put into the trumpet, if you will, and they'd cash them out into pennies. And so they'd show up with their servants with these big five-gallon buckets, you can imagine, full of hundred dollar bills, but cashed out into pennies, and they would sound the trumpets, just roar these things into these big brass cornucopias, these trumpets, It's amazing what the Bible says about stuff like that. You know, again and again, Jesus is combating with the Pharisees and he's going, hey, you know what? You prayed a great prayer. Everybody listened. Everybody heard. Everybody applauded. Good. You just got your applause. That was your reward right there. Oh, you sounded the trumpets. Phenomenal. That was great. And everybody was impressed. That was your applause right there. That's it. It's all you get. It's not the applause of God. Jesus looked up probably because of all of the noise bucket after bucket going in. And he saw the rich pouring their gifts into the big brass cornucopia out of the five-gallon buckets that their servants had carried up for them. And then he saw a poor widow. And she put in two small copper coins, two leftists, two widow's mites, as we call them today. And just to give you an idea as to how small an amount of money this is, If you would have gone to a farmer in that day and hired yourself out as an average daily laborer, so not exactly a bank president, okay, just like, hey, man, I'm a worker minimum wage guy, for your day's wage, you would have gotten 132 of these things. She has two. Maybe enough to buy her a crust of bread, maybe two crusts of bread. It's about it. And she throws them both in, which defies logic. I mean, you just look at that and go, what? It's crazy. Defies common sense. All of that is nuts. It's like, listen, if you if you have to give something, maybe you just give one, you know? And even if you're just going to give one, why do you give now? This this is the Passover. Everybody from all over the world has descended, or ascended, up into Jerusalem for the Passover. All of the prices are like really, really high. So like if ever two leftas were, you know, valuable to any person, it's her and it's in this season. Why don't you just wait and give it in a couple of weeks after the prices go down and everybody goes away and they're not quite as precious to you? That's not good enough for her. It defies, in some sense, the law of God, which requires only 10%. I mean, one of them would have been 50%. She gives them both, and she doesn't do it for a show. Amidst the noise in this temple court, this woman who's invisible to everybody but Jesus drops in her two little coins, so small that the noise could only be heard in heaven, and the noise is heard in heaven. And here's the irony. She is the one that we still praise today. It's ironic, you see. The Pharisees who lived for praise don't get it. The woman who lived only for the praise of God is exalted. The humble shall be exalted, but those who exalt themselves shall be humbled, Jesus says. It's the economy of heaven. It's the eternal economy. And so Jesus sees her do this. And he draws attention to the person that no one else has seen. He says to his disciples, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of the other people. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Which represented not only her faithfulness to God, but her faith in God, and in particular her faith... That God would actually take care of her. Pretty amazing lady. So, about seven or eight years ago now, Beth and I went to Israel, and uh, it was the first trip for either one of us. And it's really an amazing, amazing trip. If you've never done it, I know I say this every once in a while, and we don't have one of these trips coming up, but we will probably in about a year. You really need to go. It's expensive. Sorry. I, I really hate the fact that it's economically restrictive. But it is. However, it's unlike any other trip that you're ever going to take. It is an investment in your spiritual education. It will change the way that you read the Bible. For the rest of your life, it pays dividends. Anyway, we went on this amazing spiritual journey, and as part of that, we went to the town of Bethlehem. We stood outside in the shepherd's field, you know, and which also happened to be the fields of Boaz, incidentally, where Ruth gleaned in the fields. And then we went into the city itself. It's Palestinian-controlled today, Went into the Church of the Nativity, which is built over the cave complex, which is where the Lord was ostensibly born, and I think probably was born. Certainly good indications that that's the right location. And then after that, on the way out of the city, we stopped at a Christian-Palestinian jewelry store, which is actually a really nice store. And so we're shopping around, and we were looking for stuff for our kids. You know, Our son was like five years old at the time, and, and when we were up in the Galilee, we bought him this plastic sword of David with like blue and white lights inside that lit up, you know, when you shook it. And I mean, it was like, if you're five, that's like striking oil in the backyard, man. It was the coolest thing ever. My only concern about it was I put it in my suitcase on the way back. And I mean, security in Tel Aviv is intense. Okay. So I'm thinking if they x-ray and they will, my bag probably three times they'll x-ray it and they see like a miniature machete. This could earn me a trip to their private room, and I did not want to do that, so uh, thankfully that didn 't happen. but as we were looking for things for our girls, we 're at this store, and we see these ancient coins, and there are ancient coins being dug up all the time over there. Be careful who you buy them from, because there are a lot of fakes out there too, but these were authentic, and they had the widow mites. So we got all the widow mites out, you know, started looking through them to see which ones looked the best from the first century they 're really cool. And my wife had this brilliant idea, let's give a widow mite to each of our girls when they turn 16. So we held on to them, put them on a necklace, which are semi-cool, and we kept them until they turned 16. So when Morgan turned 16 like five years ago, we gave her one, and then Haley just turned 16 20 days ago. So we gave her one for a reason. It's, It's not a gift without a message. We're saying, listen, we're giving you this coin because we don't want you to live like a a Sadducee. It's a tangible reminder of the fact that you're not called to live your life as though this is the only life there is. You're not called to pick and choose amongst God's word and decide which one is his humble servant you're going to listen to. You're not called to serve him for any reason except out of the overflow of the love of your heart that he inspires by his spirit and through his word as you daily seek to live for him. And you're not called to live like the Pharisees either. Self-absorbed, self-consumed people who have their reward in this tiny little life and forsake the far greater reward of heaven, which will be ours for all of eternity. Find your identity in Jesus, guys. That's what you're called to do. Live for the applause of Him. That's what you're called to do. Live this life in light of the next one. That's what you're called to do. Serve Him with complete abandon and forget yourself in it. That's what you're called to do. Listen to His every word to you and understand that it is truth and that it is life and that it is good and that it is right, that it is blessing, no matter what it is that it says. That's what you're called to do. And far from living for the applause of men... Live for the applause of Jesus because if you think about it in the final analysis, that is the only applause that lasts. The applause of men lasts and only for a little while. And if that's the applause you've lived for, you've had it, it's over, that's it. So we're giving you this coin as a tangible reminder of the fact that you're called to live like this widow who in the safety of knowing who she is in this life and in the next through faith in Christ gave everything thing. She had. That's what we want for our kids. And it's what I want for you. So three pictures. You've seen them. Which one are you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you first and foremost for the example of humility and sacrifice that we find in our Savior who gave all. Lord, unlike the widow who gave all to the one who is deserving, you gave all to purchase those of us who are completely and utterly undeserving. (laughs) Undeserving. And yet, in the mystery of your great heart and mind, loved so affectionately that you would lay down your life to purchase us, widow's mites, it's all we are, less than that even, Lord, but not to you. To you, we are the most precious things. So we thank you for our Savior and for our King. And we pray, God, that we would stop viewing him as a threat to our personal kingdoms and instead recognize his infinite value and worth and then revalue our personal kingdoms. That we might begin to live our lives in light of the eternity that is actually coming that we might submit ourselves as your servants. Speak, Lord, for your servant listens. Here's the microphone, and it's all good, whatever you say next. That our greatest joy, Lord, let it be in the applause of our King. Applause that he gives us for the very obedience that he himself enables and by his spirit empowers. Lord, forgive our sin. Forgive us for living as if this life is the only one there is and teach us to live for the next one. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.